Welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two that are online, and 18 certificates to graduate study. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to come speak to a staff member after the lecture or visit us at iwp.edu. To support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu backslash donate. Before we begin the lecture, we ask that you take a moment to silence all electronic devices. All right, good crowd, nobody has it on. Uh, today we'll be hearing from Professor Mikola Birle, who will deliver a lecture entitled How to Address the Innovation Adoption Problem in Defense. Professor Mikola Firlet is a lecturer in AI and regulation at the Surrey Institute for People-Centered AI and School of Law, University of Surrey. He is also a research affiliate in the fact, at the Faculty of Law, University of Oxford. Mikola's research focuses on providing a deeper understanding of the role of human factors in the increasingly algorithmic decision-making across various sectors. Specifically, he focuses on the oper excuse me, operationalization of the emerging legal principle of meaningful human control over the use of autonomous systems, typology of standards applicable to AI systems, and legal issues of privacy-preserving technologies. Mikula graduated from the University of Oxford and Warsaw with degrees in law, socio-legal studies, and public policy and philosophy. With that, please welcome Professor Fear. Thank you, Sean, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, so nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, great to be here. It's my second time at the uh, Institute and uh, first time in, um, I have the opportunity to present something. Hopefully that will be interesting. Um, the topic uh, is linked to my two different streams of interest, which uh, um, I pursue since at least 2015. And uh, to be frank, initially when I started to pursue these two different uh, interests, I did not see immediately that they are that they might work together or that they are um, interfere. But increasingly, so I found some ways how to merge them, and um, that gave me perhaps some interesting uh, insights about the topic. So those two streams are, uh, of course, first in academia. Uh, so I've um, kind of been fortunate uh, to uh, got. Um, opportunity to uh, pursue a doctorate at the University of Oxford, uh, despite the fact that I actually wanted to come back to Poland uh, because I found a really beautiful girl who was uh, back in Warsaw. But nonetheless, I managed to write a thesis and um, the doctorate was about specifically the problem of human control over the use of autonomous weapons. It's a big topic. I led alone in the US um, globally, and there is the famous campaign to stop killer robots. They, of course, want to prohibit autonomous uh, weapon systems. Um, the US is taking a slightly different approach, and uh, instead of using the notion of human control, they are referring to the concept of human judgment over the use of weapon systems. And control for them, according to the military doctrine, uh, for example, in the US Air Force, is much broader concept. Uh, it relates to how the mission is uh, to be achieved. Uh, and the notion of human judgment specifically has been put in place to uh, avoid what the US Department of Defense consider as direct human control over the weapon system. So essentially the human, either from a distance or close to the theater of war, makes the decision by pressing the symbolic button um, uh, and um, deciding uh, how the weapon should um, engage um, a target. Uh, so I've explored that topic specifically. I was doing a case study in the US Air Force. I did interviews with people from uh, US Air Force, DARPA, and the um, drafters of the directive uh, on autonomous weapons back in 2012. So uh, individuals such as Paul Sharp, or the current take, um, caretaker of the director, Sean Steen. <clears throat> More on that maybe later if you might be interested, but that is one stream and that has expanded now. I'm a lecturer at the University of Surrey and I'm uh, having my own uh, program which tries to uh, understand in more uh, general terms 
what will be the future relationship between human factors and autonomous systems or AI-assisted systems. Those are two different ones, but I'm trying to make some more conceptual framework about this topic. So that's one stream. And the second stream, um, again, I was very fortunate in life uh, back in 2015 when I got an offer to study at Oxford. Um, I was uh, uh, looking for some opportunities how I can uh, fund my studies uh, because, of course, studying at Oxford is very uh, expensive. Uh, and so I was looking at different private sources and I have been backed by a number of um, phenomenal individuals uh, from the US, UK and from Poland. And uh, one of the persons who supported me was actually from the US and he gave me a chance to um, support him with his investment activities. Initially, it was very basic and rudimentary as I did not have any experience in business. My prior experience was only with the government. I was a speechwriter to former Prime Minister of Poland, um, who then has become a chairman of European Council, Mr. Donald Tusk. But, uh, um, but I've got this early business exposure in 2015 while still being a student. And then, uh, fortunately, again, I've managed to uh, contribute some interesting things, in particular, I have been able to create an, create an idea to um, establish a new academic center at the University of Oxford with the view that um, we should explore the problems of technology in the domain of geopolitics. So how, broadly speaking, technology or specific verticals of technologies can influence geopolitical choices or how they can leverage uh, the position of one country relative to another country. And we, we did that. Uh, in 2017, I have been personally involved in actually negotiating with the University of Oxford and the donor, donor uh, who was behind the investment fund uh, uh, to, to get a multi-million uh, dollar um, gift to the university. We did that. The center is called the Center for Technology and Global Affairs uh, at the Department of Politics and International Relations. And because of that, I've got further uh, opportunities in the business and now I'm uh, privileged to run my own investment company which is a fully private investment firm uh, it, and we have um, 30 uh, partners, um, uh, financial partners and we invest in early stage technologies but specifically increasingly so in dual use technologies. So the kind of companies that are able to apply technology not just in commercial settings but also in the government, and specifically uh, in the defense um, area. And I have also two companies that have successfully applied their products in the Department of Defense in the US. So we'll talk a little bit more about, um, about them. <clears throat> but I'm trying to present today a bit more general perspective. So less so about specific companies, uh, let alone my companies, uh, less so perhaps uh, in connection to my doctorate, but more in terms of the general observation that I see in the market and uh, more so in the connection of my support um, to the NATO Innovation Fund and NATO Diana project, which is a new innovation project in NATO that I will talk a little bit more. I'm supporting them pro bono, um, but they are trying to derive, uh, they, they are trying to build a new initiative based on the, some of the lessons that US has experienced. And perhaps we can have an interesting discussion about that, as I'm sure that you may have some, some good perspectives too. <clears throat> so let me start. Um, I will not talk uh, for a long time, I, I assume 20, 30 minutes, uh, and then maybe we can have a Q&A if that's fine. <clears throat> so uh, I think uh, governments, of course, played a really critical role in fostering innovation, uh, particularly uh, in, um, in olden times. Uh, the, the government was uh, uh, behind so many different innovations and uh, they have not, not only sparked the innovations, but they have also been able to control them. So they developed specific technologies, oftentimes internally, and they have been able to not just implement them, but control the spread of those technologies. It was quite astonishing when we think 
about the spread of technologies these days. Um, but gradually, different types of technologies have been able to gain independence and different sectors, verticals emerge, which then started to deal with the government. One of the first examples is the armory business. So now we have prime contractors, such as Big Five in the US. <clears throat> but in the past, in 1797, it was just the government business. So in order to have weapon systems of the US generation, the government did not rely on the private contractors, but they have created a new entity to build specifically weapon systems. But however, by 1850, uh, weapon Manufacturing business was already a standalone um, business. And uh, I think one of the big uh, drivers of uh, modern innovation in the US government, modern, I mean relatively modern of course, was uh, um, 1958 and reaction to Sputnik, um, massive changes in the US uh, administration, particularly the context of the Department of Defense and the creation, among others, uh, um, NASA, and they received the first uh, other transaction authority. I will talk a little bit more about that, but this is the um, simplified acquisition process that allows them to acquire businesses uh, or partner with private sector companies in a much more flexible way, as opposed to the dominant uh, acquisition. And of course, DARPA. Um, with the goal to invest in high risk and high payoff research projects, and that is important, not really meant to be commercialized, but research projects for the Department of Defense purposes. Um, DARPA has been relatively successful, as you know. Um, they have uh, over 3 billion US dollars budget for research projects, over 1,000 contracts and grants, and they have been behind some of the uh, astonishing. Um, developments, uh, let alone internet, digital camera, GPS, and so forth and so forth. Um, <clears throat> however, the big problems have started to arise for the government-led innovation in the 90s. Uh, and that has been particularly driven by the incredible growth and the liberation capital from the private sector. And uh, the particularly important role in that process, of course, played uh, investors, venture capital investors, and of course, entrepreneurs who got a chance to, uh, got the means, the financial means to develop their ideas outside the rigorous contours of the government or universities. Um, and back then, in the 90s, um, there has been a prevailing view that the intelligence community and defense community in the US should do something about it, because uh, they increasingly did not control the spread of technologies, and many of these technologies could potentially be of use for the defense or intelligence purposes. And we have a quotation from George Tennant, who was back then the CIA director. Um, the CIA had once been a giant in the area of science and technology, but the dot-com revolution was passing us by. And um, uh, the government realized that uh, they are not the major driver of innovation. So they, they started to do something about it. But before, what, uh, before telling what the government did, as you know, a uh, few words about the defense market. Because the defense market itself has, um, um, has um, witnessed some evolutionary changes. And the biggest change was consolidation. So here you can see on the map um, I know it's not visible well enough, but the number of companies which have been defense manufacturing companies, there were over 200 of them. And all of them in the 90s, in the span of a relatively short period of time, have essentially become big five prime contractors. Lockheed, Bank, uh, Raytheon, Northrop, Grumman, and General Dynamics. Uh, and so, surprisingly, that was meant to simplify the acquisition process and make it more agile and quick. But uh, according to many researchers, practitioners, it was the other way around. 
uh, and that resulted in a, a dysfunctional market with high prices, low competition, and minimal innovation. Most of those changes were negative, unfortunately, because of the activity of the government, because the government was outlining the specific problems of defense and intelligence um, community in the form of requirements or specifications. So we just need this, or we just need that. And all of the requirements and specifications were listed in the framework agreements. Um, and big fives were able to deliver that, of course, at a good price. <clears throat> but oftentimes, their results, their products, solutions, were actually not really addressing the core big problems that the defense and community, uh, in, uh, intelligence communities were facing. So, because they may have thought that they want to have this specific product or this specific solution, but in fact, these products and these solutions were not critical to solve the big problem in the first place. So, um, just, to, just to illustrate with one piece of statistics uh, how the defense market indeed has been able to consolidate is uh, uh, the fact that in the last decade, nearly half of all contracts went to one of the big five. And that's from the last uh, 10 years, uh, from 2010 to 2020. So the, the US government uh, has started to do something with the situation. They have initiated the program of small business innovation research programs, which is still, uh, uh, which is still active. Um, that was in uh, 1982, and that was the first funding program, really, that was uh, meant to um, initiate the collaboration with private uh, companies. Um, but as you can see, the scale of that program is very small. The USDOD is the largest agency the right, uh, that's the recipient of the, uh, uh, of the program, uh, and that accounts for one to two billion in grants annually, which is, of course, less than 1.2% of the uh, USDOD budget. Uh, DARPA, of course, executes also some small business uh, as innovation research programs. Um, they are sometimes called small business technology transfer, but essentially those are two similar uh, programs. And these are typically low-end projects of about 100,000 uh, US dollars for a company, and they run about 2,500 projects per hour. <clears throat> but the more transformative change was the emergence of IQTEL, or IQT, which is a CI uh, venture capital fund. So the intelligence community in the US um, has recognized back in 90s, in 1999, uh, that uh, there, there is a shift from, in terms of moving from control controlling innovation to a more access-driven approach. So it was less about uh, the fact that we should fight with the private sector and try to be better at innovation technologies and then control the, the kind of technologies that uh, are particularly crucial for the defense and intelligence community. It was rather the recognition that we, looked, we essentially lost the fight. And now we need to be smart about it and we need to get access to these transformative technologies now being developed by private companies. Easier said than done, because it's not easy to get access to many of these companies, which uh, we will talk a little bit later about. But they thought that the answer is to create a venture capital fund, so a private investment vehicle uh, funded by CIA, initially with a very small budget, about 28 million US dollars, but now it's uh, almost 1 billion. Um, to invest in transformative technologies globally, and then integrating them, or at least some of them, with the intelligence and defense uh, industry, uh, divisions of the government. And uh, the mission of IQT, identify, deliver cutting-edge technologies to the US intelligence communities um, to enable IC agencies to carry out their national security missions. Um, and this is important quotation from the first CEO of IQT. The most important thing is the technology return. Of secondary importance is the financial return. 
So the fund itself is structured as a non-profit. This is a really important thing, because we will talk a little bit more about the NATO fund, which has been launched this year, which is intriguingly set up as for-profit. And the CIA fund was set up as a not-for-profit entity with the big mission for technology return. And that is the measure of success. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so far, here are some of the results of the IQT work. They have, as I mentioned, uh, around 1 billion, this is not the official data, uh, about 50 investments per year, size of those investments between 500k uh, to 3 million US dollars. And financing is either in the form of equity, so they get ownership in the companies. Uh, typically, the ownership stake is between 5% to 10%, sometimes even less so. so. Sometimes even they have 1% or half percent of ownership in the companies. Uh, or work programs. So these are the licensing agreements between the company and the intelligence committee or defense um, department where the, the fund is not taking any of the stake in the businesses, but rather they have just commercial contracts. Uh, and uh, then once the venture capital fund run by CIA invest in a company, then interesting things happen. So first of all, they have uh, the fund has the value creation team. So there are actually professionals who are coming from private sector, but they have all the licenses necessary to work for the intelligence uh, division that are actually helping those companies to scale. Uh, not only in the government, but of course this is of their greater, greater uh, interest, but also more generally to become successes uh, and to become implemented also in commercial sector, uh, if that's relevant for the, for the goal of the business. Uh, so they have value creation team. The most important element of the value creation team is that they, uh, they are helping those companies to navigate the government sales processes. And specifically, there is one uh, division within uh, CIA uh, that is responsible for integrating uh, private companies' solutions into the wider intelligence um, uh, division. And uh, IQT is helping to become a broker for those companies to deal with that entity specifically, effectively, which is, which is rather hard to do. And initially, they struggle a lot. Uh, because uh, that entity within CIA was uh, run by many, very different sort of people than people who were at the helm of the IQT. And they, there were numerous clashes to the extent that two years after the formation of IQT, 80% of employees uh, had, had to leave from that specific division uh, because they were not really uh, facilitating the integration of early stage companies. <clears throat> Uh, in addition to value creation team, uh, they serve advisory roles, so sometimes they are becoming board of directors in the companies or just advisors informally, and also they bring in co-investment partners. Uh, to this day, uh, I can tell you from the business standpoint that uh, having IQT as an investment partner actually has a very strong signaling effect for the wider industry that this specific company maybe onto something interesting and maybe commercially uh, significant business one day. And there is a group of funds, so-called followers or follow-on funds, that uh, seeing that IQT is on a cap table, so have some ownership of business, really want to be there. But that, of course, creates many of the challenges for the intelligence community, because now the intelligence community has to deal with many of the foreign partners. So many of these funds, of course, not come from the US, uh, let alone have the same interest. And the intelligence um, uh, division, which is typically regulated by the international law, in addition to the US domestic law, of course, um, now is dealing with many of the stuff related to the private commercial law, um, securities, and so forth, which generates problems in itself. <clears throat> uh, but the general approach is to uh, build a portfolio approach in the venture business, we have the term power law, 
which means that we invest not in a single company, but a specific fund invests in 20, 30 companies, betting that at least one of these companies will return the whole fund and will generate significant, significant returns at least three times for the money committed to, uh, by investors. In uh, IQTs, having what is, not, what is called defense paradox. So they bet on, say, 30 or 50 companies per year, and they hope that at least one of these companies will provide what we call technology return. So will become transformative for the defense of intelligence um, uh, division. And that's the measure of success. And here is the quotation illustrating that. As a result, the CI didn't have to pick a single winner or loser. Now they could bet on three or four companies in a given product space without having to go through the process of a single procurement. So access has been granted. Now the intelligence community and defense industry by extension has an access, or potentially has an access, uh, the ways to access the technology. But the problem is with adoption. So access is not sufficient. Then one has to have the rules in place and the culture and the people that will facilitate the access and transfer access into uh, adoption. And the Defense Science Board, a highly cited quotation from about two years' time, Defense of the Department does not have an innovation problem, it has an innovation adoption problem. Funny enough, this is now a quotation um, cited by uh, leaders of defense or intelligence community in a number of countries. I have seen it in the UK, in Poland, and so forth. So it uh, seems like all the, all the countries think that they have the same problem, which may not necessarily be the case. Uh, report from 2021, Center for Security and Emerging Technology. We find the military current approach to engage with small tech companies or non-traditional vendors is more akin to innovation tourism quite a damning uh, assessment. So um, I mentioned about the specific division within CIA that's responsible for integrating early stage companies. This is called QIC. And uh, it's an administrative layer through which IQ tells technologies must move to reach the largest CIA. I mentioned about the problems with the culture, with the type of people that have been there and so forth, but even though there have been necessary changes implemented back in 2001, still the adoption margin was very, very small. Uh, and to this day, um, the most prevailing view within the Department of Defense is to focus on specific specification requirements uh, of what is needed for the defense uh, industry, rather than asking the problem questions. So we have this problem, for instance, we would like to monitor the specific individuals in um, highly contested environments uh, where we do not have very good penetration, how we can do it. So no, this is not the approach. The, the prevailing approach is to specify that we need this specific piece of technology or this specific type of product. And another problem is time horizon and so-called term uh, value of death. So many of the early stage companies are short of money, of course. They have runway. Typically, the runway is between 18 to 24 months since the initial funding round. And then when they experience that the process of integrating with the ministry, with the Department of Defense or Intelligence Community lasts over 10 months and still they don't see meaningful results, then it is very likely for them that they will burn money and they will not be able to attract new investors and the company will go bankrupt. And uh, this is a big problem uh, because in this specific period of time of the companies where there is the value of that, they are not having money to, become, to, be, to run a profitable business, they need to show the meaningful traction of getting POCs, pilots done, some successful integration, early customers and so forth. Once they are not able to get this, then it's, it's not a business that will run for a long time. <clears throat> so in 2015, there has been a new wave of changes, and uh, the creation of Defense Innovation Unit is the most um, significant one. 
explicitly set up to tap into Silicon Valley's ecosystem. Uh, and with the view that we should not only get an access, but also facilitate the adoption. Uh, so it was specifically set up to bypass many of the bureaucratic and acquisition roadblocks. Uh, so in my view, while DARPA represents the symbol of control-based approach to innovation, Defense Innovation Unit represents the symbol of access-driven access approach to innovation. Uh, this is all based on the so-called rapid acquisition process. Uh, the proposals that are um, presented, the proposals that are required by the Defense Innovation Unit are very simple, structured as problem questions, not as requirements or specifications. Uh, they require very short answers in about five slide pages or 20 slide pages, nothing more than that. Then there is a pitch. So it's similar as the companies talking to investors. And after the in the final phase, there is a technology demo. So in a nutshell, the process looks very much like the process of getting a venture money. So when the investor is speaking with the companies, they, they typically want to have the deck, the proposal, which is very short, 20 pages is maximum. Typically, it's about 10 pages. Uh, some basic estimates when it comes to what is the runway and what is the burn rate, ownership structure of the company. Then there is a short uh, pitch. If the pitch is satisfactory, we're moving to the demo, and then the, there is a final decision. Typically, the process takes about three weeks. Same implementation. <clears throat> uh, and so the formal structure behind this rapid acquisition is the process or the rule that is called other transaction authority, which gives more freedom to set terms and life of the project. All the transaction authority is different from the dominant procurement rules in the US Department of Defense, which is called Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations. Um, but when we look at the details, uh, this may all look very well and good. But the problem is that Defense Innovation Unit's impact was actually very minimal, or it is very minimal to this day. And the proportion of the other transaction authority uh, relative to the dominant acquisition process is less than 1% within the whole government. So um, this is from the recent report of Defense Innovation Unit, what they did. They, they are proud of um, uh, issuing 72 prototype ad transaction authority contracts. They have supported the launch of 20 dual-use ventures, uh, integrated over 100 early-stage ventures. Not sure whether the, these are actually facts, to be frank. But anyway, this is what they claim. Uh, and uh, the companies supported in the areas such as commercial threat data, cyber asset inventory management, and so forth. Uh, interesting detail is that 33% of their contract over these have been first-time DOD vendors. So when we compare that to the domination, uh, to the monopoly of big fives, this is quite quite interesting result. 86% are considered non-traditional and 70% are small businesses. But as I, ha I have said, the impact was still very, very small. And that has been confirmed by the resignation of the, first, of the director of the, of the Defense Innovation Unit, who was the first director, Michael Brown. And there has been lots of publicity of bringing him to the defense industry because he was a celebrated CEO of Symantec. And also the resignation of Nicholas Chaden at the US Air Force first uh, chief software officer. Both have been unusually critical about the state of um, acquisition process in the Department of Defense. And they were claiming that the US will lose their competitive advantage if the situation will not change. Here is a quotation from Michael Brown. A critical lack of support from Pentagon leadership for Defense Innovation Unit. That may be represented by the small figure of what money has been contracted. It's less than one billion when you compare that to 
to the Department of Defense budget, you got the picture. A recent uh, change in the US uh, DOD, or generally speaking, uh, US government, is the agile procurement law. It's not yet the regulation that has passed, but it's a um, new legislative initiative, um, bipartisan, focused on reforming the acquisition process in the US DOD, but with the specific, with the specific focus on the culture and the people. And the, uh, there will be staff training to improve IT acquisition, a pilot program to encourage private sector employees to go um, to the US DOD and perhaps jobs in the procurement uh, area. There will be a working group to identify and reduce barriers. Uh, an expansion of existing program that incentivizes employee stock ownership plans. <clears throat> and this is what is happening in parallel in the private business. So over the last few years, there have been at least three significant companies that have been able to uh, grow into their government and receive significant contracts with the US Department of Defense or intelligence um, uh, agents. SpaceX, Palantir, and Anduri. Uh, however, only one of these companies have successfully um, done IPO, initial public offering. Uh, this is Palantir. Um, at the IPO, it was about 21 billion US dollars. Now the valuation is 70 billion, so there was a, uh, there was a uh, decrease of valuation, but it is, um, it is driven by the wider market conditions. As Palantir is, of course, the suite of data analytics solutions. I will talk a little bit more about Palantir. SpaceX, as you know, is a um, uh, space exploration company. Uh, interestingly, there is a quotation from the academic paper that uh, SpaceX Starship system fundamentally changes the paradigm of NASA science, technology, development, and testing, and human exploration of space. And uh, when I look at space, SpaceX, I think the most significant achievement of the company uh, is related to ending the monopoly of the United Launch Alliance, because they have been able to develop the reusable uh, rockets at the fraction of cost of what has been uh, built by the government. And they have been able to broker into the government successfully to, um, to deliver those rockets. Unreal is a new generation defense prime contract. So Unreal bet is to uh, win with the incumbents, the big five, with the Lockheed, uh, uh, General Dynamics, and so forth. <clears throat> I will have an in-depth look at two of these companies, Palantir and Andui. So Palantir initially, uh, as I mentioned, is a data analytics company initially struggled a lot to get funded. And they went to the big venture capital firms in, the, in Silicon Valley, and uh, investors were either not interested in having a meeting with them, or once they met, they were not interested even, uh, they were not interested even in listening to that business. And there, is a, there are a number of famous anecdotes and so forth, but one of the really interesting ones is that uh, Kleiner Perkins partners have, after the meeting with Palantir representatives, uh, conducted a seminar to teach their associates how not to make the business, because the business is meant to fail, based on the case study of Palantir. Uh, yet Palantir has been able to achieve uh, significant success, and so the first backers were, of course, Peter Thiel himself. He's uh, uh, a co-founder of the company, but uh, back then he was already a wealthy individual and uh, CIA fund, IQT. And uh, they started uh, with the recognition that the future of defense is based on data, and specifically the future of intelligence based on data. Uh, and uh, the problem, though, was that many of the divisions within the Department of Defense uh, were having critical data, but they did not know about their respective data. Or once they were able to get information about a specific piece of data, there was a process to get that data. And the process was time-consuming, often bureaucratic. So they have come up with a technology, and that, this is how they started, to actually link different departments internally within the intelligence 
uh, agency to get a unified view of data so that they can apply that data to, for instance, target high-sensitive individuals in the Middle East or some potential terrorists domestically. And this is how Project Gotham has started. And second, what they've done is having this product, they have been able not just to implement that product in the Department of uh, Defense or in intelligence agency, but also they have been able to build a moat. So as you know, moat uh, from Warren Buffett is the significant competitive advantage of the business relative to other businesses. So what Palantir did is that they have built a moat because no other private business was able to do it in such a deep and profound way. So they have built the stickiness of the product. There was only one of that, of that kind. But that has not, until Project Metropolis, resulted in a phenomenal revenue because they've, they've, been, they've got a really strong position in the intelligence, with the intelligence agency, they've got about 40 million US dollars revenue and so forth, but still it wasn't a, a spectacular business. So then they expanded the defense business into commercial setting, and this is how they have been able to drive a very significant initial public offering with a good valuation. Uh, now, funny enough, the defense business is uh, is the one that gives them all the problems because the private business is generating uh, the vast majority of revenue, uh, less controversy and so forth. And uh, uh, there are some information I cannot share, but there's some significant individuals with, within the defense practice of Palantir um, are highly not satisfied with their work um, and we may witness some changes. So. Second look is at Anduri. <clears throat> it's the story again of the uh, Founders Fund that is a fund of Peter Thiel. He was behind uh, Palantir, he's also behind Anduril. Uh, specifically his colleague True Stevens uh, who was sent by Peter Thiel specifically to Silicon Valley to investigate what are the next interesting defense technology companies. And he did uh, profound research. He was talking with as many people as possible and come to Peter Thiel saying, I didn't find anything. There was no even one significant early stage company that was doing anything uh, with defense industry that would justify the venture financing. So Peter Thiel told him why, why you cannot build something on your own. Unfortunately, True Stevens uh, met, uh, met uh, a guy who sold um, uh, Oculus to Facebook for two billion US dollars. And they have joined forces and built Android. And a quick story about Android is that they, they started with the with this piece of technology, a robot, to protect the border, uh, the US border, but then they have expanded with a suite of, a suite of products uh, and weapon systems in a similar manner to uh, how prime contractors are working, uh, such as Lockheed Martin or Northern Ground, but with few different uh, elements. First different element is that instead of betting on hardware, they started to bet on software because their recognition was that the software will be the um, key differentiator. Second, instead of responding to specifications, the requirements as we discussed, they recognize that there is a profound change happening in the Department of Defense from requirements specifications to problem questions. So they should answer more holistically the problems that the Department of Defense is having. So they started to build to the mission rather than specifications. And then they have uh, realized that many of the talented people are not going to the defense industry anymore. They are going, of course, to startups. Uh, and they want to work on something cool. So they wanted to bridge their talented people uh, with defense industry by being a cool private company that is actually a software-first company. 
transforming something that has not been transformed for decades. So they have addressed the talent shortage. And build a suite of relevant products. They, they have been actually very smart in terms of what kind of products should, should prioritize based on the US interest. And now the company is having around uh, uh, sorry. Now the company is having around five billion US dollars valuation, four point six now, but they are raising the round with the seven billion now. <clears throat> Quick lessons from Anduril and Palantir is that there is a shift, profound shift to software, uh, while defense technology has been typically hardware first. Um, those companies have been able to address the brain drain that is happening in the defense industry. They have cracked the sales process to the government. Uh, having also, and this is uh, equally critical, value creation teams of investors. So either CI investment fund or private venture capital funds, which uh, build value creation teams in defense. Uh, and now a bit more uh, fundamental view about the situation in the market. In particular, the war in Ukraine, but also the geopolitical, the changing geopolitical ramifications, specifically the growing tensions between the US and China, have stimulated many of the talented entrepreneurs to build dual-use companies. By dual-use companies, we mean, of course, the companies that are able to apply their products and solutions to both defense, industry, and in commercial setting. And uh, this is the quotation from Nick Bain, who is having actually one of the best track record in backing uh, defense of dual-use companies. He's working as a partner in Penrod. We're seeing meaningful momentum across the dual-use landscape. Larger contract sizes, increased contract velocity, and steps toward revenue, revenue predictability. So we have in parallel the changing geopolitical situation, which stimulates many of the talents to build such companies. And at the same time, we have changes in the defense and intelligence uh, in, uh, departments that are allowing those companies potentially to thrive. Still limited examples, but huge potential for disruption. <clears throat> then there are some interesting questions. So first, Assuming that we are about to build a new fund, now not run by CIA, but run by the Department of Defense or NATO, should we focus on commercial or defense first? Dual use companies. So is that really important? Well, I would say that this is important because commercial first companies may never be dual use. They may have built a safe and significant revenue in, uh, in commercial market, and they may not be interested in actually uh, applying these specific solutions to the defense industry. And while we have so many successes in deep tech and so forth, in companies developing technologies, significant technologies in the private sector, we have very few successful defense-first companies. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard to invest in such companies with the view that one can get money. And this is fundamental because uh, if you can't only rely on the not-for-profit initiatives. Ultimately, if you would like to attract the best talents, they need to feel that they can get something financially out of their work. Um, three elements. First is that uh, Gross margins are uh, typically much, much lower uh, when you are building for defense, as opposed, let's say, enterprise software. In enterprise software, you have 80-90% of gross margins. Um, in defense industry, uh, Anduril, Palantir, uh, although those are two different businesses, they have uh, margins significantly lower. So Palantir, uh, closer to 60% and Anduril much less so. Uh, m and activity in defense industry did not provide sufficient returns. They have not been very attractive exits. Uh, 
not really significant liquidity for investors. So investors historically have been uh, reluctant to pursue investments in that area. And finally, a lack of um, value creation teams among venture capital funds. So the private venture capital funds do not typically have the relevant networks to allow for meaningful implementation of technologies in the Depart Department of Defense. Why? Okay, they can build relationships with senior military officials, but the people that really matter, the program managers who control the budget, contract officers who approve purchases, and uh, users, pilots, uh, soldiers, and so forth. They typically do not have good penetration in that networks. And so here we come, after all this experience in the US, to the big questions. Uh, as this is the alliance that the US is part of, uh, and a new initiative of the alliance that the US is not part of. Uh, it's a NATO Diana and Innovation Fund, established this year in 2022. Uh, it's modeled after um, IQTEL, the CIA fund, with 1 billion initial funding. Um, committed from 22 allied countries, but not from the US, for instance. Not from Germany. <clears throat> In addition to the fund, there will, be an uh, there will be an initiative called Diana, so the network of accelerators, which will help to develop new companies, these dual-use companies, that will help to um, drive the innovation so we can then use some of the products and solutions that they are building for the defense industry. Uh, however, uh, however, NATO Innovation Fund is focused on the commercial first companies, not defense first. And uh, another problem is that uh, there is uh, very little uh, thinking what the value creation should look like, what really the essential pieces should be in place to not just get an access to innovation, but to adopt the innovation as we've discussed. 